0: liberty bible church it is awesome to see such a full room this morning i hope everyone had a great thanksgiving um i have a really uh just brief question i'm just really curious and since i have a full room uh, i have the mic so i get to ask it so i want to know um who how many people in this room uh were christmas decoration people immediately after Thanksgiving. What I mean is like the next, very next day, you got up at 6 a.m. and you started putting up the Christmas tree, the, how many people here? It says a lot about the kind of people that you are. You're, you're crazy. Now, the real test, what, what was that? I know, that's why I was gonna ask. So, the real test is who did it before Thanksgiving? No, I'm sorry. No, no. See, there's an ironclad rule in our home no Christmas stuff before Thanksgiving. So you obviously guys love Christmas. God bless you. Yeah, so before we get right into our text, I wanna take a few minutes and acknowledge a couple of things that make this particular Sunday very special. Now obviously the first thing is is that we're finally worshiping together as a Chesterton campus under one roof. We're together here. Worship center community, sacred ground community, all together in one space. And so to you, the people that would formally be considered the worship center community, I just want to say thank you. And What it means to us as a church as a whole, the, what you've guys done to accommodate this change. And I know that the sacred ground community is very grateful for your spirit of love and generosity, for your flexibility and for just the grace that you've shown in this transition. But I want to encourage you in one thing this morning, and I want to ask you a favor. Now, as we close the service later on this morning, I want to encourage you that as you leave, I know, sir, some of us, the habit and custom is is that we typically duck out right after service to go take a nap or watch football or something. But I want to encourage you to linger. Because the reason why, one of the reasons why we, are doing the service a little bit earlier and we're asking you to get up a little bit earlier is to give a lot of space in between services so that we can give each community time to interact with one another. So I just want to encourage you as you leave today to linger. Just spend some time in interacting together because I tell you what, this is, why, this is one of the reasons why we did this. This is so that we can build that sense of unity, that sense of family, that sense of togetherness. And so I just want to encourage you to continue to lean into that today after the service. Now, beyond the special significance for our particular church, this morning has significance also for the church at large, the Universal Church, because today, as Tim mentioned, begins the season of Advent. Now, this has been typically a time of reflection and preparation for the time of Christmas that is coming up. But for many people, I suspect the season of Advent has been something that we've never really celebrated. And to be honest, I probably didn't know what it was until I was an adult. Now, historically, in the non-liturgical traditions of the Protestant church, the Advent season doesn't get much attention. And, but you're starting to see it more and more. But I'm willing to guess that many of you it just doesn't register that much. So why is Advent important? Why am I even bringing it up right now? Well, I want to suggest to you that the season of Advent is worth your time to engage with. Because Advent is more than just candles, candies, and calendars. The practice of Advent goes back actually to the earliest centuries of the Christian church. We don't know quite sure when it started or how it started, but forms of a preparation time leading up to Christmas have been recorded all the way back to the fourth century. The word Advent itself comes from the Latin adventus, which means coming or arrival. And so, obviously, this points to the significance of Jesus' arrival at his birth more than 2,000 years ago. But Advent just doesn't have the historical birth as its point of reference. As we mentioned already, Advent traditionally has also been a time of reflection about Christ's coming here here in the present as well among his people, but also looking ahead to the future at his second coming. So Advent has historically been a time of preparation. The idea of cutting out distractions, of reflecting and focusing on the meaning of Jesus and the gospel, of cultivating a posture of humility and obedience. Now to this end, there's been a really strong connection between the practice of Advent and the habits of prayer and fasting. It's all meant to form in us, into God's people a mindset of preparing oneself for the coming of our King and Savior. Now, I don't know about you, doesn't that seem like a perspective and practice that we so desperately need in our own day? I don't know about you, but when I think of the words that I typically use to describe the Christmas time, it's usually words like busy, (laughs) hectic, stressful, that's why I think this Sunday could be significant for us in more ways than one. The first Sunday of Advent, it's an opportunity for us to slow down and to pause, to reflect on the coming of Jesus. And so thankfully, that's the spirit, the exact spirit that we find ourselves in our text today and in the go- story of Luke's gospel through the series that we've been going through, Seeking Jesus. We find in this text today the story of a servant of God, and she pauses and reflects on the deep meaning and significance of the role that she was going to play in salvation history. Now, last week, we were introduced to that person, to Mary, or I would say we were reintroduced to her. And Tim shared so well about her background and the favor shown to her by God, but this week, her story continues. And we get more insight into her humility and to the humble nature of the kingdom of God. Now, I can't think of a better text to introduce Advent than this one, this narrative telling of Mary's encounter with her cousin Elizabeth and following on with her song of worship as she reflects on the birth of the Redeemer. Now this story, now this poem, one thing emerges, and that's our key for today. And that's this, that the message of Advent is a humbling message. The message of Advent is a humbling message that the coming of the kingdom and her king is one that can only be received from a humble position. So let's look at this moment in Luke's Gospel, and let's remember the events that have led us here. We initially heard of the angel Gabriel and his dramatic encounter with the priest Zechariah, announcing the birth of his son, John, who would come in the spirit of Elijah, preparing his people for the Messiah. And we read about the same angel Gabriel coming to Mary, An amazing event, this nobody teenager from a backwater village announcing that she would be the one through miraculous means to bear the child Savior. Now this story, this text that we have today, now brings those two threads together. The story of Mary and the story of Elizabeth. Of John and of Jesus. And we have in this story Mary traveling to her relative Elizabeth in the months leading up to John's birth and here's what we read. And if you want to follow along with me, opening up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to pick up this story in verse 39. Let's read the word of God together. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Now, as is common with Luke's storytelling, there's a lot going on here. in this little short episode, we have a lot of role reversals. We have a lot of upsetting of social conventions. There's a lot going on underneath the surface, but the episode begins somewhat as you might expect. We have the younger Mary traveling to the elder's home, Elizabeth. We have Elizabeth greeting her as you would expect in that culture. And you have the younger one showing honor to the elder, the priestly wife, and she's extending appropriate hospitality to Mary. But then those normal social conventions, they're immediately kind of turned on their heads because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's Elizabeth who begins to prophecy. And interpreting the movements of the baby in her room, she shows honor to Mary, to the lesser one. And then in her divinely inspired exclamation, she calls Mary blessed. And in fact, three times Elizabeth calls Mary blessed. In verse 42 and 44, three times she declares this of Mary. And so the question that I want to focus on, though, is why is Mary called blessed? Why does Elizabeth call her this in what one commentator calls the first beatitude of the Gospels. Out of all people, Mary, this nobody from Nazareth is declared blessed among all women. Why is that? Now you might say, well, Kevin, the answer is right there in the text. This is pretty duh, right? We have a couple of reasons of why Mary is blessed. Elizabeth says so, and you'd be right. There are two answers given by Elizabeth, but I wanna look at those answers more closely. Now, the first reason that Elizabeth gives for why Mary is blessed is because she is the mother of the Messiah. She's the mother of the Messiah. Now, seems like a pretty good reason to be called blessed, isn't it? No other woman in all of human history could say that. Only she of all women could be claimed to be with the title of mother of the Most High. And what's amazing about all this, though, is the fact that this favor was giving to Mary, Mary of all people, a shocking development, which I think we touched on last week. And I think we tend to be so familiar with the Christmas story, so familiar with the picture of a genteel Mary in our minds, that we we might miss how exceptional the choice of this particular young girl would have been. You know, if I would have been a Hollywood screenwriter, writing, say, a superhero origins movie, the story of a coming king. I tell you what, this is probably the last thing that I would have thought of, right? In fact, you kind of get that sense from reading Luke's gospel. Because in Luke's gospel, if you read through the account, if you come to it with fresh eyes and you kind of ask your question, who's the person in Luke's gospel that you think would, it would have been more appropriate for, as a choice to bear the, the Messiah? What character in this story do you think would be a better choice? For me, I think I would have chosen Elizabeth. I mean, think about it. Elizabeth. She's the wife of a priest. She is childless, yes. But I tell you what, her story is eerily similar to another story that we have in the Bible, isn't it? The story of Hannah, the story of the Old Testament woman who was childless, but through the Revelation of an angel gave birth to the Old Testament prophet Samuel. And I'll tell you what, as a literary archetype, you can't get any better than that. But I tell you what, one thing, I definitely wouldn't have chosen a nobody from Nazareth. And I tell you what, the sheer craziness of that choice is actually the point of the story. It highlights ever so pointedly the absolute unmerited grace in the way that God chooses people. And you know, Mary's own words reflect her awareness of that reality. She says later on, from now on, all ne- generations will call me blessed. That is incredible to say, isn't it? Why is that? Well, she says, because the mighty one has shown mercy on me. She realized she's the... F- that that she is blessed because of what God the mercy that God has extended to her. So the first reason that Mary is blessed is because she has been shown unmerited favor of God. As a choice of free grace, he has chosen this young woman to be an instrument by whom a critical moment in salvation history was being brought to fulfillment. Now, of course, this truth I think has significant implications for us today as well. Obviously, we are not chosen to be the ones to bear the Messiah. But we are no less recipients of God's unmerited grace than Mary is. In fact, she recognizes that. She says, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. That includes you and me. Now, that answers from one direction of why Mary is called blessed. But Elizabeth gives a further insight into this young girl's blessedness. Now, The second reason that Elizabeth declares that Mary is blessed is because of her response. Mary is blessed because of her response of faith. Elizabeth says later that, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now I want to remind you and and say very clearly right here that the grace of God is entirely unconditional. It's poured out generously, regardless of the person. But what we see here is that the heart and the spiritual posture of the person can have a determinative influence on how that person receives that grace. Let me repeat that. The heart and the spiritual posture of the person can have a determinative influence on how that person receives that grace. And that, this is where Mary stands out. More than any other facet or characteristic, Mary is known for her faith. And we can understand that because not many of us would have responded in the way that Mary did. I can tell you for sure that I would not have responded in that way. My response to the angel's message probably would have looked more like Zachariah's, to be honest. Instead, we see Mary reacting to the angel's incredible message with, with simple faith. And you know, we've been pondering this a little bit the last couple weeks. But it's worth repeating verse 38, just prior to our text. We have Mary saying to the angel, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's such an amazing statement. Let the power of that response just sink in for a minute. It's just hard to miss the simple beauty of her faith you know, she would have every earthly reason to wonder and doubt what was being said to her. You know, based on her own background, based on the miraculous circumstances surrounding her birth, she could have easily questioned what was being told to her. Now, even though it certainly didn't make sense for her and and also knowing what it would have meant for her life, her response was a choice to trust the message and the messenger. So what do we gather from Elizabeth's word of blessing? Well, we learn that blessedness comes when we respond to the grace and favor of God with our simple belief and trust. Now, one other detail of this episode bears mentioning. You know, a casual reading of Elizabeth's words might miss a subtle nuance to it, but did you notice a difference in the blessings? You know, there was a shift in the perspective from the first blessing to the third blessing. So, did you see that shift, how it goes from the second person, Mary, blessed are you, to the third person, blessed is she who believed. Now, you might read over this really quickly, but I think this is a little bit more than literary flourish. I think this is, there's some intentionality to this shift. And I think it's Luke, what he's doing is that he's inviting the reader to self-reflection. He's... Asking us to place ourselves into the position of Mary. To ask ourselves, are we the one to be called blessed because of our faith? And how might we respond in Mary's place? And so Mary continues in the spirit of reflection. She brings it into greater focus in the following verses through her song. And the song that she sings now is a moment where she takes stock, where she reflects and ponders on the significance of these events. So... More specifically, I want us in that spirit of reflection to ponder what this song tells us about the kind of heart that is most ready to receive the grace of God. So let's look really briefly at the song. We're gonna dive right back into the word and we're going to continue on in the passage with Mary and her worship. So let's read this, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Now, man, this, this song is jam-packed. There is so much that we could say about it. Much, in fact, has been written about this particular song. Much about its, its theological significance, its place in the narrative of Luke, its importance as prophetic revelation, but for us this morning, what I'm really fascinated about is what this song tells us about faith. Specifically, what does her song reveal about a heart that is ready to receive God? Or conversely, I wanna look at about what are the things that may harden the person to that grace? What was it about Mary's posture? What is it about her heart that made her more receptive to receiving the grace of God? Now, the opening lines open a window into her heart towards God's word to her, and it's one of worship, one of humility. She declares at the very outset, magnify the Lord, magnify and rejoice in the knowledge of the favor that has been shown to her. She is worshiping. I can just picture the scene right now where she's overcome with an exalting heart, with worship. She's moved to praise. And that worship comes from the fact that she knows that she's fundamentally in a position of need. She calls it her humble estate, and that grace is being shown to her is completely undeserved, and she knows it. So what we see is that humility is the hallmark of her faith, the basic posture that she places herself in. She's recognizing and embracing the position of a servant. Now, at verse 51, this, this song kind of takes a really interesting turn, if you noticed. Mary, at this point, begins to unfold some pretty remarkable statements. Statements about the grace of God. She's describing some of the ways that the movement of God humbles those in positions that the world would generally consider important, positions of power and wealth, and she shows how God is turning all of that on its head. So what's going on here? Why is Mary making this sudden and strange turn in her song? Well, I wanna suggest that these reversals help us to see the things that may prevent us from the blessedness of believing God. Now, what are those things? What might keep us from being in a posture of humility where we might receive the grace and mercy of God? Well, I think the first answer to that question from the text is pride. It's pride. Verse 51 says, "'He has shown strength with his arm. "'He has scattered the proud in their heart, thoughts "'of their hearts.'" Now, there's probably no other attitude of the heart that is more against the workings of grace than a heart of pride. What is pride? pride? It's the false and unnatural assumption of one's supposed worthiness. It's thinking higher of oneself than is warranted. How can someone who doesn't recognize their true position before a holy God truly be in a position to receive the humbling grace of God? Now this won't be the last time in Luke's gospel that we see this kind of reversal. In fact, the message of the gospel itself is a fundamental humbling thing. But you know, it doesn't end with simple pride. Mary expands on this. She says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So the second answer to the question of what might hinder us from receiving God's grace is privileged position. Privileged position. Now, out of all people that you might think would be likely from a human's perspective to be closest to God, it would be the important people, wouldn't it? The kings, the religious people, the people in charge, those with influence and authority, according to the values of the world, those are the people that would have the intelligence, the background, the insight to know when God was moving or not. But you know what we see here that stunningly, God has different idea. Not only is that not the case, but what this passage shows is that those things might actually mask a person's ability to recognize God's mercy. Now we should take note. We should take note that it's those in positions of privilege that are most often in the Gospels the people that miss out on the kingdom of God. And this should definitely cause us to stop and think. Stop and think if only because in the many ways that we in upper class America are more likely to be the ones in privileged positions in our own world. So Mary gives a final and third answer to the question about how a person might miss the moving of God. She says we might miss it through our self-sufficiency. She declares, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So what's going on here? Now in many ways, this is kind of a continuation of what she said already, a continuation of what we just heard about pride and position. However, there's kind of a specific twist To this. Namely, it's the question what makes a hungry person more receptive than a rich one? Well, the hungry person knows that they are hungry. They are continually aware that they are in such desperate need, and the only one that can save them is the Lord. Now, a satisfied person, however, a satisfied person may be lulled into a sense that all their needs are already met, so why would they need God? And so that's the danger when we become comfortable in our abundance, that it's that abundance that we may lose sight of the reality of our real need. Now, I don't have to tell you the significance of these words for us. Because I tell you what, this is what our culture looks like in many ways. These three things describe our world so well. Pride, privilege, abundance, Now, I don't want to give the impression that God is somehow against those who find themselves in advantageous circumstances. That's not what I think they're saying. All of us at some level can rejoice in in the things that God has given us and the positions that we're in, but the point of this passage isn't the presence of those things necessarily. It's meant to help us reflect on the condition of our hearts in light of those things. And it's that reason why I think Advent can be so important for us, so powerful for us, It could help us adjust our own perspectives, that we might come to a position of humble dependence, that we might be in a place where our response to grace would be like that of Mary's. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. But it's also to recognize that there's much about our world that works against our having this kind of heart. So how should we respond to these words? What might be some practical ways that we can fight against the spirit of our times and cultivate a humble heart this Advent. Well, as we kind of wrap up, I wanna offer a couple of really practical thoughts on ways that you might live into the Advent season. Now, like we mentioned at the outset, Advent is meant to be a time of preparation. So I wanna wrap up this first Sunday Advent in that vein. How might we be preparing for the coming of Jesus? How can we put ourselves into a posture of receiving the humbling message of the holidays? So the first practice that I want to suggest to you this morning is worship. Worship. Now there's a lot about our modern celebration of Christmas that makes worship really difficult, doesn't it? Instead of slowing down, the season is usually marked by an even more frenetic pace. Who hasn't gotten through the holidays? I know I have, and have looked back and said, man, I didn't really even have time to breathe this December, let alone really contemplate this, this time. Now well, the truth is we have to fight that. We have to fight that tendency. We need to make an intentional effort to focus our thoughts and our hearts on Jesus. And that's why I say worship is a key practice for this time. Now, practically speaking, the suggestion that I want to give you is that I want you to consider to set aside a specific and intentional time the next few weeks to worship as a family. I don't know what that might look like for you. Maybe that might mean making a space to read scripture, to sing carols, to pray, to contemplate together the significance of the season. But I tell you what, I believe very strongly that a lot of effort's gonna be required if we wanna overcome all of the distractions of this time. Because it's not normal for us. It's not normal for our culture, and there's definitely a lot around us that are working against the spirit of humble reflection. So I wanna say, make the time, make the time to worship together. Even if it's a small step, because I guarantee you, you're going to look back on January 1st, and you're going to be grateful that you did that. Now, the second area of response, practical area that I want to encourage you in, is hospitality. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, why is he bringing up hospitality here? Well, in in a text that begins with an act of hospitality, it seems fitting that we should end here, but there's another reason why I'm bringing up hospitality. Because more than any other abbot, practicing open hospitality puts us into a humble position of a servant. You know, just think about it. You're opening up the most sacred and intimate space in your life, your home, and you're opening it up to people other than your immediate family. And not only that, you're humbly serving them and in that space for a specific set time. So welcoming people into your home might seem like a mundane thing, but I want to suggest that there's not a more radical and humbling thing that you can do. But I want to encourage you to even go a step further. I would encourage you to not just open up your home this holiday to the people you're naturally comfortable with, like your close friends or family. I want to encourage you to consider practicing hospitality with people who are not like you. Open up your home to those who are in situations that the world might consider lesser or more disadvantaged. Maybe it's inviting a coworker who doesn't have any family or a single mom who's struggling, or an immigrant or refugee who's alone this season. I want you to look towards those who are in different ethnic backgrounds, economic situations, political affiliations open up your home to someone you may normally never consider bringing into that intimate space. Why is that? Why am I suggesting that? Because this is a tangible way to place yourself in a humble and receptive position. And so that is ultimately my hope for you and for us this Advent, because I want us to be intentionally cultivating the spirit of humility as we're preparing for Christmas. Now, I know it's kind of silly to say, be humble. Humility is one of those things that is impossible to just do, right? I can't just say to you, have humility, because it doesn't work that way. But the reason I'm suggesting these particular habits for Advent, the practicing of worship and hospitality, is because these are relatively simple and intentional things that we all can do that will indirectly foster this mindset and heart towards humility. And in doing so, we're going to fight. We're going to fight against these tendencies which overwhelm us in the holidays, these tendencies in the world that work against our receptivity of the free grace of God. The workings of pride, the temptations that come with our privileged positions and the self-sufficiency that comes along with our abundance. And it's my prayer this Advent season my prayer that we might walk more closely in the spirit of faith that is so beautifully captured here in this story and in the Song of Mary. Let's pray. Father God, we humbly bow before you. Lord, we recognize that we, have, we can bring nothing before your throne. And we confess, Lord God, how so often, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we walk in this world with a spirit of pride. I pray that you would forgive us. And I pray that you'd help us, Lord God, to garner that humility that is so needed in this time. That as we practice Worship as we practice opening our homes to people that um, we would consider the least of these. I pray that you would be sowing in us just the spirit of humility, that we would be more and more able to recognize our deep spiritual poverty and our utter need of you. So we thank you for this time and we thank you for your grace and we thank you for this moment that we have to pause and reflect and to prepare. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.